never fully surprised when he got to heaven to discover, first of all, a Chinese-looking guy, and introduced himself to him, and found out there was none other than Confucius. And he was really happy to know that Confucius was in heaven, and Confucius informed him in some kind of a dialogue which he reiterates in the book that uh, uh, he really believed the same way that Christians did, and heaven was a very broad place, and he went on to sort of say laughingly he was surprised to see Confucius had a surfboard under his arm, which uh, secured his place in heaven even to a greater degree. He said he then went further into heaven and ran into a much fatter Oriental, and only to find out his name was Buddha. And he had a conversation with Buddha, who said, of course, I, I, uh, I am to Confucius what Mary was to Martha. But Confucius, from a religious standpoint, was very concerned about the busyness and things like that, and I'm much more meditative of Buddha being the, 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 I guess it's with the Mary, yet to Martha, Martha was busy doing this and that, and Mary was sitting and learning, and, and uh, he was also pleased to find out that, uh, that Buddha was in heaven. Now the book continues to go like that, and one chapter is called What the Christians Need to Learn from Non-Christians, and the ideas were all headed to heaven, and we've got to fight this culture war together. Now that in itself is amazing. When you get to the end of the book, he says, Now here are the steps to victory. First of all, we have to recognize that the greatest warrior on the face of the earth, the only one who has the power to really lead the troops, is the Pope. And, the only way we're ever going to have victory is through complete devotion to Mary. Because Mary is the only person who can win the unwinnable war. Now the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that the end time is going to be one world religion. And it's all going to come together. And it tells us that there is also going to be some false prophet who is going to call the hangman to the worship of one individual that the Bible identifies as the Antichrist. And many believe the Pope is a perfect candidate for that. And it might now be true that Peter Kraft might be an apt candidate for the false prophet. That in itself is a very, very interesting scenario. And what is particularly shocking is to close the book and read on the back cover the endorsement, first of all, Charles Colson. And secondly, a lengthy endorsement by none other than J.I. Packer, who says at the end of his endorsement, what if Christ is right? question you ask is, wait a minute here, are we literally convinced that anybody believing anything can get into heaven? I've never seen anything so straightforward, so forthright, endorsing what is inevitably an end-time scenario. I've never seen anything that sounded so much like what the false prophet would do. That was endorsed by leading forces in the evangelical movement. Absolutely shocking. The book is filled with shocking statements. That's one thing. It's the endorsement that is most shocking. What if Peter Kraft is right? He's not right. He's not right. And there is no understanding of the scripture that can at all make it possible for everybody who believes anything at all to get into heaven.
college, turned his back on a great academic career and entered the ministry. Two years after he had made that decision to walk away from the most elite academic environment in the world of Cambridge, he wound up in India with July 16, 1805 and he sailed for India. And upon sailing one of his diary, now let me burn out for God. In other words, he knew that he had ignited the match, and now it was just a matter of how long it was going to burn. He had set himself as a war on fire in a selfless act, turning against what would bring him glory to lose himself in the most difficult mission field on the face of the earth. We got to Calcutta. He walked into an abandoned Hindu temple, and by the way, for a while he lived there. And he watched the people prostrating themselves before images, before these false gods. And he said again in his diary, this excited more horror in me than I can ever express. His own poverty of circumstances, his own debilitating lifestyle, his own physical weakness, his own complete isolation in a culture like that at that period of history, in a totally pagan and grossly pagan environment, was a miraculous to him. What caused him pain was the dishonor of God because the man was so devoted to the worship and the glory of God. Later, he moved to Shiraz from Calcutta and busied himself with the translation of the New Testament into Persian. And while he was there, many Muslim visitors came to see him and engage him in religious conversation. His customary serenity was only disturbed when someone insulted the Lord. And his biographer says on one occasion, the sentiment was expressed that Prince Abbas Mirza had killed so many Christians that Christ from the fourth heaven took hold of Muhammad's skirt to entreat him to desist. In other words, the scenario had Christ begging Muhammad to stop his agent from killing Christians. Here was Christ kneeling before Muhammad in this fantasy. How would Martin react? He says this. He writes in his diary, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. And then he wrote this. I cannot endure existence if Jesus is not glorified. It is hell to me if he is to be thus dishonored. And he said that to his Muslim visitor. When his visitor asked him why, he replied, If anyone pluck out your eyes, he answered, there is no saying why you feel pain. It is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. Now there is a man who is a rebuke to an indulgent life. There is a man who is a rebuke to a selfish, consumptive kind of Christian living. There is a man who knew the reason for existence, and was all bound up in the glory of God. He was experiencing what David said in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. The focus of everything was the Lord. The attitude of spiritual selfism that pervades the church is the key reason why people don't move out and have powerful lives. It's the key reason why they don't aggressively get involved in evangelism. It's the key reason why they don't give themselves a total commitment to the cause of Christ. It's the key reason why they aren't obedient to the Word of God. It's the key reason why they don't worship as they ought to. Too busy 
seeking personal blessing, personal peace, personal comfort, personal solutions to all these petty personal problems, rather than the glory of God most wonderfully realized when one abandons himself to Christ. You can sympathize, for example, with a young Hudson Taylor. He was a great man in 1865. He became very burdened for the land of China, again like India, not only paid in place. He found the self-satisfied hymn singing congregation of which he was a part intolerable. He looked around him and wrote this pew upon pew of prosperous bearded merchants, shopkeepers, visitors, demure wives in bonnets and clothes, scrubbed children, trained to hide their impatience. The atmosphere of smoke piety sickens me, and I seized my hat and left. He boarded the church, not because something was wrong in the pulpit, but because something in his mind was wrong in the pew. He wrote again, I was unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone, brightness on the south coast of England. I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there on the beach I prayed for just twenty-four long laborers. And from there, I went to China, and from there the gospel was preached, and from Hudson Taylor today there are at least 150 million Christians who have a legacy of his original ministry in that great land. It's the whole idea of focusing your life on the glory of God. And you see, that's the theme here, believe it or not, in our text. Go back to Romans 3. Let me put you in touch with that. It comes about in somewhat of a negative way when you go back to verse 23. A very familiar verse, and often we overlook the last part of it, which is the most telling part of it. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. You see, the goal of every life is to glorify God. And everybody, apart from Christ, falls short of it. That's the goal, to glorify God. Sin is not glorifying God. Rebellion is not glorifying God. Iniquity is not glorifying God. Lostness is being in a condition of not able to glorify God. So when the Lord saves you, and saves me, and saves anyone, it is so that we no longer fall short of glorifying God, but rather we now glorify God. We are saved to glorify God. Our well-being is only secondary. That's right. Our well-being is only secondary. We're not saved primarily for our sake, but primarily so that we can glorify God. We will spend all eternity doing that. The glimpse of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, and what is everybody up there doing? They're praising and glorifying God and praising and glorifying the Son of God. That's what's going on in heaven all the time. Worship, worship, worship. And that's what we will do forever. This is a brief vapor that occurs for all time, this time in which we live in the world. And this brief time is to introduce us to salvation. And when that salvation is complete, we spend forever doing what we were saved to do. And that is to glorify God. We spend all of eternity doing just that. In fact, no matter how you look at salvation, it's for God's glory.
saving act of Christ on the cross, the fact that angels, only in one way, it didn't say that angels, angels cannot fall, angels, demons cannot be saved, and holy angels are fixed in their holiness. So salvation has no direct application to angels, only to men. But the saving act of Christ on the cross affected the angels by revealing God's wisdom in a way they never could have seen it if there hadn't have been a salvation of sinners. When God created angels and angels fell, there was no salvation, so angels could never praise God for grace because there was no grace dispensed to angels. They could never praise God for mercy because most mercy never touched fallen angels. The only domain, the only realm in which mercy and grace are exhibited is in the human realm, and so angels would never have seen God's grace and mercy on display if he had not saved sinners. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, and verse 10, an often overlooked verse, it says that God saved in order that his manifold wisdom might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. God wanted to show his glory to angels through the work of salvation. So, we can conclude that salvation affects the angels by giving them greater reason to glorify God. Let's turn the table and go to the demons then. The saving act of Christ on the cross affected Satan and his demons by revealing how God's holy and unconquerable power in salvation is also going to crush them eternally. So not only do the holy angels know the power of God and salvation is manifested in the church, but the demons know the power of God and salvation as he has rescued souls out of their domain and crushed them forever in the lake of fire. And then when it comes to human beings, the saving act of Christ on the cross affects us by saving us so that we can spend forever glorifying God. And that's what we will do. Your reason for being saved you haven't yet realized. You haven't yet realized it. Because you're not yet perfect, and you're not yet glorifying God. In the full sense. Philippians 2.11 says that we are saved so that we might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We do that forever and ever and ever and ever. David Brainer, the great missionary to the Indians here in the United States, said, I do not go to heaven for personal advancement. He said that to his biographer, you know who his biographer was when he was lying on his deathbed, he was speaking to his biographer, none other than Jonathan Edwards. He said, I am not going to heaven to be advanced for my personal advancement. But, he said, to give glory to God, it is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or low seat there, but to live and please and glorify God. My heaven is to please God and glorify Him, and give all to Him, and be wholly devoted to His glory. That's worship. When you were saved according to John 4, John 4, the Father sought a true worshiper. So, in the end, go back to my original statement, in the end, Christ died for God. Christ died so that angels could glorify God in a greater way. Christ died so that sinners could glorify God. For his mercy and grace 
and loving kindness. In that sense, the chief purpose of the death of Christ was for God. Yes, he died for the world. Yes, he died for sinners. Yes, he died for the chosen. All of those are true, but primarily he died for God. He died for God. Now that's the substance of the passage, okay? That's what this passage is really about. And we're going to look at these verses from 25 to 31 in the next couple of sessions and unfold the absolute profound significance of how Christ died for God. But let's just take the first statement of verse 25 so we set it in place. The rest of the passage elucidates it and explains it. Verse 25. Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, he thought, God, that's the source of salvation. It couldn't come from man, it couldn't come from angels, it could only come from God. God had to determine that he wanted to reconcile sinners. God had to initiate salvation. So you have the source of salvation in the designation of God. Then it says, whom God displayed publicly. And you go from the source of salvation to the incarnation. There is the incarnation. God displayed publicly. That is, he revealed himself incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a propitiation. What's that? Satisfaction. A satisfaction. God initiated a plan to save. It involved the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the one who would satisfy God. Christ had to come into the world to satisfy God's requirement. What was God's requirement? The soul that sins it shall die, the wages of sin is death. God had to have someone die and satisfy his just requirement. So you have the source of salvation, the sovereign purpose of God. You have the incarnation as salvation is publicly displayed. You have the means of satisfaction, a propitiation, a covering, and the death of Christ. He says that in his blood. Sacrificial death. How is it appropriated? Look at it again. Through faith. And that one statement, you sum up the gospel. God sends his son incarnate to be the satisfaction for sin through sacrificial offering of his life, which is appropriated to the sinner by faith. That's the gospel in one sentence. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God accomplished salvation. This is a tremendous, tremendous statement. And at that point, he begins to discuss then how it is that God is so satisfied with Christ, and how it is that salvation turns to the glory of God. Suffice it to say this, in this passage, I'm going to give you four points. I will jot them down, and I'll cover them probably two at a time in the next two days. Monday, the Friday, Monday. How does the death of Christ glorify God? How did Christ die for God? How did he put God on display? Number one, his death declared God's righteousness. His death declared God's righteousness. Number two, it exalted God's grace. It exalted God's grace. Three, it revealed God's consistency. It is unvarying. And 
Lord confirmed God's word. When you look at the cross, what you really see is not just Christ dying for the sake of sinners, but you see God being glorified. His righteousness is glorified, His grace, His consistency, His word. And that's why we say Christ died for God. All of those attributes of God, His righteousness, His grace, His consistency to what the technical term, His immutability, His unchanging character, and His word of His revelation are manifested in the cross. So, a proper view of the cross will lead you to glorifying God, it will lead you to selflessness. And that's what we're going to trust the Lord is going to do as we dig into this passage next time. Let's go with you Father, we thank you first of all that you have so fit in the magnanimity of your infinite wisdom and grace to provide a means of salvation for unworthy sinners. But Lord, what would it mean to us if you were not so gracious to us as to call us to yourself, as to bring to the hearing of our ears and the faith of our heart the truth of the gospel? Thank you, Lord, for saving us out of all the Lord, making us a part of the few that you have called your own the remnant. And Lord, help us to see our salvation not as a means to personal satisfaction, not as a means to personal indulgence, not as a ticket to pleasure and comfort, but as a means by which we can endlessly, relentlessly, unhesitatingly glorify your name. Give us a full and a complete and rich understanding of the greatness of your salvation so that we truly might live to your glory. We would pray that you would even out of this wonderful, precious group of young people raise up some, many who have the kind of devotion of a Henry Martin, the kind of devotion of a David Brainerd and so many others who they live not for themselves, but for your glory and your praise. You understand that their salvation is primarily for you. In order that they might praise you and glorify you. Lord, help us to understand it as simply and profoundly as just this. You saved us. Not for what you can do for us. But really for what we can bring to you. And that in itself is a wonder of wonders that you could even receive glory from us. But we thank you that you so designed to do through the work of Christ in our hearts and someday through the perfection of everything when we are resurrected in your presence. And we live for your glory and your honor. And you bless us through this day as we apply even what we learned this morning. We thank you again for this time of worship in Christ's name. Amen.